Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hello, E.K. Wimmer. I am Rye Rose. Hey, you're listening to a podcast about the 80s, so... Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, welcome. If this is your first time, thanks for joining us. If this is not your first time, thanks for coming back. Uh, we think it was a good idea for you to come back this week. Good choices. Yeah, great choices, guys. You're, this is the first good choice you've made today, probably. Yeah. Only good ones are going to follow. That's true. Wow. This was a really good choice. Because Magic. we have a very good episode for you today. They're kind of um, stepping on holy ground, sacred territory. Mm. We've been really... Kind of avoiding the big, big ones for a while, but it's time. It's well, we knocked on the door, and we were invited in. That's right. We so, sure did. here we are. <laughs> well, this week, we are coming at you with a big, big one for this household. The Lost Boys, 1987. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the um, single most important horror movies of my upbringing as a kid. I am not alone. I'm sure you're not alone that same way, but... Some people, you know, may or may not like it. I don't know too many people that that don't, like, completely don't like it. But I do think it's one of those films that if you were the right time when you saw this, this is the definitive vampire movie. And for me, 100% true. Wow. Uh, This is really... So this is the vampire movie for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I have vampire movies I really love. But uh, when I think of, like, the formula of what Mm. makes, like, a really watchable vampire movie, this is it. It's, It's a classic. Interesting fact. I... I would say that my definitive vampire movie is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. No doubts there. I knew I knew that. I could have called that a million miles away. Interestingly, this movie was uh, an inspiration for the Buffy. Yep. I believe it. Yeah. And the Buffy uh, um, series, too, yes. as well. Yes. Because this coined the phrase vamp out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we are ridiculously amped up on facts because we have been reading articles and watching interviews and making ofs and everything. And it's like inventing facts, we're totally inventing half this stuff. Our brains are going <laughs> to blow up. So we have to like just get through this episode before we do thrift store finds of the week. What do you got? Oh, yeah. Um, well, you actually found it. for me double duty this week yeah well welcome i've been looking for ages for a giant uh set of cutlery not to hang on the kitchen wall like a dork i want to i wanted to do like a an art project with it and i didn't want like those green wooden 70s you know fork and spoon that you see on everybody's oh yeah no like the rustic ones yeah that's not what i was after i wanted it to look just like a, you know, a fork and a spoon. Silver. <laughs> that's it. I've been looking. I can't even tell you how long I've been looking for them. And you found them. You sent me a picture and I was driving. So I didn't get to immediately respond. And when I finally did, I was like, please tell me you got them. Please tell me you got them. And you just didn't respond. And so I had to wait till you made it home. And there they were. Yeah, of course. I mean, <sighs> I, I didn't even need to ask. I just, um, I knew. Yes. And so I immediately, obviously, lost my mind. I was so excited, but it was part of a bigger plan. They're huge, by the way. How big do you think they are? Um, they're three feet. Okay. So yes, I measured. So three feet each, a fork and a spoon, and they're metal. They're yep. Like, real. They're real silver. No, that's <laughs> no, a lie. They're not real silver. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm already inventing things. Okay. But my plan was to make a big bowl of spaghetti. Uh-huh. And I, so I started looking for something that would be a plate. I did the you know fork to plate ratio figured out how big my 
my plate needed to be. It was like the size of our bedroom. It was it was too big. Yeah, it was huge. I've given up that dream, so now I have to find a new use for my fork and spoon. Yeah. I'm I, well I'm open to suggestions. It was it's really cool looking. Yes. I do think that they're they're pretty awesome. They're amazing. <laughs> what did you find for yourself? I found just sitting in a stack of commons at a thrift store. Uh, the movie Scarecrows from 1988, which I actually like. I watched it not too long ago. Maybe we should consider it for a future episode. We'll see. Uh, someday. It's a form release. I really like that distributor. They're hit and miss, but they've got some really cool stuff. They did like Edge of the Axe and stuff like that. But um, I found the tape and I was like, holy cow. I was so excited. I do own the tape, but I own the screener copy, mm-hmm. which doesn't have a cover. It's just the screener in a blank like slip, like a white blank slip case. Mm-hmm. So I had made, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, I made a replacement cover printed out on the computer oh. for it. Well, just so I could have the cover art, because the cover art is really awesome. Yeah, and I think that most of our listeners don't understand how intense you are about this. It's like <laughs> a whole thing, and it looks super authentic. It does look good, yeah. Actually, there's a few people that I've sent tapes to that can can verify I take it way too seriously. So seriously. Anyway, I so I had this replacement cover that I've had for a couple of years, and I found Scarecrows, and I was so excited. And then I always, because I've been burned so many times over the years, immediately check to make sure it's the right tape, and it wasn't. It was some totally random tape inside. However... This was one of those rare tapes that I had the tape for, but did not have the cover. So I bought it for 99 cents Uh. and I put my copy inside of that loose cover. And now I have a complete and I was very excited because I really do like that tape. I love the cover. So that was my find. And I, you know what, for for a buck, uh, that was a good find for me Uh because that's an actual tape I will keep. It's not one that's just like, well, whatever. So the the circle is complete. It is. Yes. And for me, as a very obsessive person, I um, it made made a big difference to swap out the replacement cover with the real Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. There you go. We've done it. Another week. The trip down nerd lane for you. Yeah. Welcome. (laughs) All right, enough of that, chipper jabber. Are you ready for the real deal? Yep. Put on your shades, crank your Echo and the Bunnymen. Put in your cross earring. We are going for a ride. It is the Lost Boys. Okay, full disclosure, everybody has seen this damn movie, and they've probably seen it multiple times. So this is a case where we are not going to talk about the movie in scene by scene. It's kind of boring to do that anyway. It is super boring. We're getting very bored by that, but... I think this is an approach where it's like, everybody knows the movie, so let's just talk about it. Let's talk about what went into it, how it came to Mm -hmm. be, who the people were, the story, how it developed, the music, all that jazz. So as you listen to this episode, um, it's just not a scene by scene. If you're- We'll kind of remind you if it's been a while, we'll take you through it, but not, we're we're not gonna hold your hand. We can sum it up in like one sentence, but I I just don't- They're vampires. The end. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But this is going to be more of just a trip down how this film came to be and and what the the effects were. So fun fact. Yeah, hopefully you'll enjoy this episode because with every minute that goes by, I'm losing stuff that I have prepped for this. Oh, so you're afraid I need to get this out of my system. This feels much like the um, this is a lot like the Weird Al episode where we were like so jacked up on facts. Yeah. 
that this, the next day I woke up and felt like I had slept for days because it was all out of it. my brain. It's not out of mine. I was talking, I don't even remember who. I was talking to somebody about Weird Al and I just started going on and on. <laughs> and I was like, maybe it's quarantine, but also why do I have so many facts still in there? It's, yeah, it is kind of weird once yeah. you watch, once you do an episode, you do retain a certain amount of those facts. Yeah, I mean, some of it just flies off into the ether but a lot of it sticks there and comes out at really inopportune times and you only realize it when somebody's eyes glaze over yeah for sure well the lost boys is an interesting one before we even launch into it a little backstory when when did you first watch this film because i i was older because you know as we've said many times i came from a pretty sheltered background Mm -hmm. so i wasn't allowed to watch you know R-rated movies when I was four, like you. No, that's but... why you like made up for lost time in rapids. I mean, you like were unleashed yes. by the time I met you. I was like, whoa, this person is consuming anything and everything. Yeah, so I think it was probably high school because I got a TV in my room uh, in high school and I just started, you know, doubling down and catching up uh, for lost time. So it was somewhere maybe fifteen-ish. So I didn't show you this one. I don't think so. Okay. I a few times had thought you had, but I, I remember seeing it before you. So okay. I'm sorry. Well, that's good. We still stall it pretty young, though, honestly. Yeah. I mean, a lot happens between, what, were you like seven? <laughs> no, no, I didn't see it the moment it came out. I did see it pretty early on. This is probably one of two films. I had a really close friend. We were like brothers growing up, and we watched... Uh, this and uh, a couple other films religiously. Like I would go over to his house. I spent the night at his house, even during school nights through all of, you know, elementary and junior high, like, because we lived right down the street from each other. Mm -hmm. So we would often, when we're going to sleep or when we'd wake up before school, like, uh, you know, purge uh, the Lost Boys. We had it all, every scene memorized. And it was just one of the few films like this and maybe Escape from New York and The Goonies. Those films for me, I just watched constantly. So you, you had this one memorized? Did you memorize any other movies? Goonies, for sure. Yeah, The mm. Goonies was a big one. You I, do quote that uh, unbearable a lot, amount. yeah. Uh, but it, particularly the I want my bike scene. <laughs> I do reenact the I want my bike scene. Yeah, it's and we'll have a tie into The Goonies on this episode. But I think that... Uh, The Lost Boys for me was just one of those introductions to really cool horror. Like, everybody looked cool. I listened to, you know, heavy metal at the time, like classic heavy metal. So these Mm -hmm. guys looked kind of like what I was listening to. But I was also starting to listen to things like The Cure and uh, post-punk and goth. And so Echo and the Bunnymen were on the soundtrack. And I was like, I actually know this band. And so I think that this was just a very transitional film for me. And that's why it's been so precious over the years. I've always wondered if it would grow out of favor with me, but it has not. I will argue the opposite, that every time I watch it, and I think it's maybe because once I got into filmmaking myself, I could notice things like the cinematography and stuff that I really did not appreciate as a kid and now I'm kind of in awe of. So Mm -hmm. this film has actually gotten better over the years. I think that... I agree. It's just so rewatchable and it's such a quick film. It does not lag 
in any point at all. Like there's there's no low points where you're just like, this is when I'm going to get up and make some food. No. <laughs> it's just, it's from beginning to end pretty lock solid. And I think, I mean, I've seen this so many times as well. I would say that there's always something new to pick up on when you watch it because so many things are happening because there's so many great creative voices involved. <laughs> and so it, there's always something. Just if you're watching this for the like 1100th time like we did, uh, you know, pick a character and follow them and pay extra special attention to them or their maybe their wardrobe. Or like even the set design. I Yeah. What's crazy is I just watched recently because I finally got a New World copy of Reform School Girls. And on the wall right there. I've seen this film my entire life. But because I had just watched Reform School Girls, there's a poster on the Mm. wall, a movie poster right there. I'm like, how I've never seen that before. That's how films work. You know, you just pick up certain things. Yeah, we'll talk about a certain wardrobe later on. Yes. That I maybe had never really paid attention to. Boy. (laughs) But boy, is it How did we not? Yeah. uh, (laughs) Well, so talking about the creation of this, you know, and how it came to be. This was written by Jan Fisher and James Jeremiah. That was really their first script that they had co-written, and they pitched it, and it got picked up for a lot of money. They sold it for four hundred thousand dollars. Jeez, in eighties money? That's yeah, a billion that's a, now. That's a lot of money for a first script. It was picked up, but uh, what is really bizarre was the original script is nothing like what you saw oh, yeah. at all. So the original script was really about a bunch of elementary school kids. I think they're supposed to be like 13. They were like fifth and sixth graders. The vampires were supposed to be like young teens. Yeah, but no, like the rest of them, like the Frog Brothers and stuff were all like Like grade school kids. Yeah. And it was all based on Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. So all the characters had Peter Pan names, which would have really drove me nuts. I would not like this movie. Yeah, there's a lot I wouldn't like about this. Interesting. It is interesting to see... That the script was there, however, you get more experienced people to come in and finesse it. Yeah. And this was picked up, and then it was really under the watch of Richard Donner, who, Mm -hmm. like we, you know, had just kind of talked about previously, did The Goonies, one of my all-time favorite movies. We watched an interview with Richard Donner where Mm -hmm. he talked about this, and he said... It was a really good interview. What was it, on YouTube? Yeah, it's like a making... Well, it's not a making of, it's a retrospective. Yeah. Where they look back with the cast and crew on it. Like, the full cast. I mean, not everybody. It's everybody. Well, it's It didn't have Jamie Gertz on it. No, but it was... I would have liked to hear from her. It was pretty thorough, um, and I was kind of shocked, and they really do go into what it was like to make it and stuff, and we learned a lot from that. I watched it quite a few times, actually, and... Whoa, nerd. Well, no, it was just... It was interesting. (laughs) But Richard Donner was set to direct it, and he said it kind of sat for a while, mm-hmm. and he's the type of person, which I can totally relate to, that if you over if you sit on a project too long and it doesn't get made, you lose interest. Absolutely. And he was losing interest, so he decided he would be the producer, but he needed to find a different director. And so that's why he didn't end up directing this. Also, he was going to do Lethal Weapon, so he, yeah. you know, he couldn't do it anyway. And he, I think it was his wife that suggested Joel Schumacher. Yeah, it was. He was pretty much an up-and-coming director. Uh, he wasn't young, but he just hadn't really broke in yet. He, he said he'd done a few other things. Yeah, I think this was maybe his fourth film, yeah, if I'm not so. mistaken. Mm-hmm. He had done St. Elmo's Fire was the big one. Mm-hmm. But uh, he got brought on to do this, and I would argue that that was probably the smartest <laughs> decision in this whole entire saga. 
is this is really Joel's vision. And yes. every person that we listen to interviews with, uh, the makeup, the set design, cinematographer, everybody said they were following Joel's vision. I think that's so important. Uh, you know... I would say at a, a different point in my life, I didn't really understand the point of a director beyond just, you know, taking like being like a conductor of the elements that already existed. And as we've, you know, watched and learned about directors more, you really realize that there are the the ones that make all of these visions come together in a way that makes sense. And I actually can't even fathom doing that mm-hmm. because especially in in the arts you know all of these people have i mean first of all you're dealing with actors which holy <laughs> holy like guacamole yeah. that uh-huh. makes me want to poke my own eyes out just thinking about working with a bunch of actors um and all of their creative visions you know they all want to play their character a certain way. They want to understand a backstory to make them come to life, which, of course, those are all valid things because if you have a backstory for your character, then you understand them and you can do your job well. However, you've got to deal with all of that. Then you have all of the creatives behind the scenes from lighting, cinematography, Mm -hmm. makeup, wardrobe, set design. It's crazy to think of being able to have your vision encompass all of these other people's vision and, and make it make sense. Yeah, I would also say that not only that, that you have to juggle everything as a director, but you have to articulate your vision. And yes, that's clarity. the big downfall. Because, I, I mean, I don't know to new listeners or whatever, but it, I've kind of mentioned it over the over the episodes is... So I compose music for films and I've worked on several features and I will say that directors have (laughs) very different approaches. This is the insider's view right now is as a composer, you are being asked to work on somebody's vision, but do the music for that vision. And a lot of times they want the... um, the the soundtrack or the the score to be much more expensive sounding than they have money for however some directors have a very specific vision and if they are good at articulating that Mm -hmm. i can fall in line right away and the end result is like everybody just was on the same page if there's a director that is really struggling with making sense of what they need for the music it is it's like pulling teeth and i've had every spectrum at this yes. point now i mean I've, I've seen it all and people um, who know what they're doing and know what they want to people who have no clue yeah and i will say that with this and everybody involved with the interviews i read and, and listened to it seemed like joel even though he was fa- fairly new and at times could be a little bit like this is my vision and a bit uncompromising mm-hmm. he was so crystal clear about it and i think yeah. that started with day one when he got offered the the job and he admits this. He was super arrogant for being so young. Was yeah. he read the script and he said, "This I don't want to make a little kids vampire movie. I want to make like a sexy, cool teen vampire movie," <laughs> which is true. I mean, that's what it is. And yeah. I think that um, you can tell that that was his focus because every time he talks about the cast, it's like he was good looking and he was really sexy and he really did have an idea of what he needed. However, it was the costume designers that really gave the the look of the film. Mm -hmm. But Joel did not want to sign on. And so once they agreed to let him basically rewrite the film to make it a bit more mature and a little cooler, 
uh, that's when the film took on its life. It's interesting that you mentioned that because so many people had to be convinced. Like in the documentary, <laughs> yeah, Jason yeah. Patrick had to be convinced. Yeah. And, you know, everybody just kind of had to be convinced. So with that in mind, it's kind of amazing that they turned out something so high quality and so delightful. It is really interesting. And we'll talk about this as we go through some of the more, you know, other people involved, though. Really, everybody involved breaks into three pieces. It is seasoned filmmakers and and, uh, people who have worked in in cinema just wanting to do a vampire film. That's one of the reoccurring themes is that, like, some of the people they got, they shouldn't have been able to get. Mm -hmm. But it's that they always wanted to do a vampire film. They got a lot of things they shouldn't have gotten. for sure it yeah. was kind of like a lightning in a bottle a lot of the the cast was first time cast members so they didn't even know what they were getting into they were sure. just like sure i'll do this and then the others were like on the fence and didn't want to do something that was just like a low budget horror movie yeah and needed convincing that this wouldn't be and so i feel like all of it came together to create what we know is the Lost Boys, and there's a reason why this mm-hmm. works on a level that other films like this hadn't yes. before or after, really. So that's kind of the creation of it. And, and really, once Joel took it over, it, it really did become his film, and everybody yeah. fell in line with knowing that we might not know where this is going, but we believe in it. Oh, yes. And along those lines, uh, Corey Feldman and uh, what is his name? Jameson Newlander, yeah. who played the Frog Brothers, did not know that they were funny characters until halfway <laughs> through the filming of this movie. And I love that so much. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get into the characters of this yes. film. Actually, the reason, the way the Frog Brothers came to be is really funny. Mm. But yeah, so that's kind of who we're dealing with, with director and producer. And then location was important because I do feel like this is crucial. Although I was shocked to find out, I did not know this, that it was shot in Santa Cruz, the Santa Cruz Boardwalk. which Everybody is very, knows it's super, Yeah, it's super. very legendary, although it's Santa Carla in, in the film. Yes. One interesting thing I didn't know uh, when I was reading up on it is, you know how they talk about it being the murder capital of the world? Uh-huh. The Santa Cruz Chamber of Commerce was not happy about it because it turns out in the 70s, they had at one point three serial killers active <gasps> and they were the murder capital of the world. There There's was, no way they were the actual murder capital No, no, but they the had been dubbed that in the press because there was like 30 people in the span of like months oh, okay. killed by three different serial well, that killers. Was like- all of California in the 70s. Sure, was like, but they were like, could we maybe not bring back that? Rebrand here? <laughs> yeah, uh, but they did anyway. <laughs> and then what I was shocked by was the film sets. This was actually, there was a couple just shot on actual film sets. Mm-hmm. Like the whole cave scene, that's all, you know, on a film set. Well, it's like a sunken hotel. And then the big one is the house. and Grandpa's house. They basically shot the exteriors and then recreated the exterior interior in a film set. And it was pretty amazing. I think it was Corey Haim that was saying, like, he on set, on the exterior, had seen, because it was fall, had seen where the leaves had all fallen. And when he got to the recreated version... They had been so meticulous that, like, the leaves were even in the same spot and everything. I think that's Corey Haim BS. Sure, it is. But at the (laughs) same time, I would agree because I've never even given this a second thought. I always thought this was an an outside location, and it's not. Hmm. Well, I I think it's the night scenes that were shot in, like, a soundstage. Yeah. 
but that's kind of the location. And then the crew, I don't need to spend any time really on on most of them because we've talked about it already. But one person I do want to highlight is Michael Chapman, who who is the really their big get of this whole entire a film. Mm-hmm. He was a huge deal. I think he had already won an Academy Award at this point for cinematography, maybe for Raging Bull. Something like that. He had done a ton of stuff, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He had already started directing. Yeah. He did a, like all the right moves or something. Joel, in his interview, was saying like this was a, a long shot. And the only reason why they actually got him, because they could not afford him, he was already way bigger of a deal. Was and it's cute because he's in the documentary talking. Oh, he's he's he pretty was charming. So great. He said, "I just always wanted to make a vampire movie, and this was my only shot. Like this was yeah. it." And he agreed to. And what's crazy is, after I heard that when we rewatched it recently, mm-hmm. watching the tracking shots and stuff, like, oh, yeah. holy cow, this is really high caliber cinematography that they definitely could not afford. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how powerful a good cinematographer is. They can just totally change the way you see a movie and I, I think he did his job very well. It's beautifully shot and I think that also it's fun when you get somebody who is way overqualified for the movie you can yeah. afford that just want to do it because they're excited about it and this is the case. Like yeah. they just... He just wanted to make a vampire movie. And we'll find that with one other cast member, by the way, who was like, I always just wanted to make a vampire movie, (laughs) who also was super established. But really what does make this film, and this is what Joel Schumacher said, is that all things considered, um, it's the cast that really is the staying power of this film that, that created the cult status. Oh, yeah. The cast is like... Amazing. I think they captured all of this talent early on in their career. And almost everybody went on to have fairly significant or at least long running careers. Some of them could have been and should have been bigger. But in in some cases, by choice, they they kind of freaked out after the success of this and sure and didn't know what to do with it. But Who, who would? Yeah, the, the cast is really interesting, and this also does come down to Joel being pretty specific about who he wanted and how he wanted them to look, uh, which I think is smart. And I'll talk about this at the very, very end when we talk about the sequels, is that casting in this really made a huge difference, because I feel yes. like everybody playing their roles was the right cast. Absolutely. And as I was researching, I found out somebody who almost was cast or somebody who auditioned and oh, didn't who make that? it. Oh my goodness. Ben Stiller. What? Yes. Who was he going to be cast? I don't as? know. I don't know. I couldn't figure it out. I got one other crazy one for okay. you. Okay. That actually was considered. And I know the role he was considered for. Ooh. Jim Carrey. For what? David Kiefer's part. <gasps> Oh, he would have done okay with that. Because he had just done uh, Once Bitten. Yeah. Which oh. actually, there's a little cameo. there. Once Bitten is, uh, you can see the poster in the background of the video really? store. So yeah. many Easter eggs. Anyway, uh, let's talk about the cast. Okay. Because, I mean, as everybody knows, hopefully you guys are having fun with this. Because I just... Oh, it's great. This is just like a love fest. Fun. If you don't like this movie, why are you even still listening? Don't rain on Get our parade. Get a job. Yeah, totally. Like, we're just having fun with this one. So the Lost Boys is our troop of vampires. And we actually first meet them on a carousel on the boardwalk in Santa... What is it? Clara? Carla? Whatever. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly, so they're all walking on this carousel. And we meet them in the order that they later die. 
You know what's interesting about that? What? I didn't know that, first off. But second, I think it's when Corey Feldman talks about how vampires die that he's like, some scream and yes. some go silently. That's the order in which they die. Yes, yes. I love that. It's so much fun. And so we have, and I'm not going to read them in the order that they appear, but we have uh, David, who is played by Kiefer Sutherland. A very young Kiefer Sutherland. He was a little chubby baby boy. He had just done Stand By Me. Yeah. I mean, he comes from, like, acting sure. royalty, so whatever. But he he's doing great. Uh, we have... I don't know if she's a girlfriend. We have Jamie, or Star, played by Jamie Gertz. She's also one of the vampires. She's really great. So let's slow down for a second, because Kiefer, um, he, I just think he did a killer job, but being so young. <laughs> killer job. Well, he didn't really kill anybody, so not that killer of a job. Well, no, he killed all of the partiers. <laughs> well, sure, they all did. Okay. <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, but I thought that he did a really good job, and, and he had a fun time with it. But she's an interesting cast because she's the only one that Joel had a very unique vision of mm-hmm. and did not get. He envisioned Star, who originally was a boy in the mm-hmm. original script. Mm-hmm. But Star, he wanted it to be this blonde, short-haired, like, pixie character. He wanted it to be Wayfish. Yeah. And it was um, Michael, or why well, I shouldn't call him by their character name. Um, yeah, Jason Patrick. Jason Patrick, who suggested her because he had worked with her in like a play or something. Mm-hmm. And when she came in, Joel was like, whoa, okay, yeah. And I, which is crazy because I think she's like, Perfect. I couldn't imagine she's anybody star. else's star. Yeah, absolutely. So she's one of the like half vampires. And we'll explain that a little bit more. We have uh, a vampire named Paul. He's played by Brooke McCarter. He's... Uh, had a pretty successful career, just kind of mid-level. Is he the model? No. That, that Who's is... Who's Paul? Uh, he's the other one. He's not Oh, he's a, the blonde-haired guy. Yeah. He's, oh, he's the bathtub one. Yeah. Okay. So then we have Dwayne, who's played by Billy Worth. He's been acting and has continued to act successfully, but he was found at, I don't know, some big university. It was like Harvard or Columbia or something. Brown. I think Brown. he was in Brown. Okay. Yeah. He, but Ivy he League. was whatever. So he's smart. He's an artist. He's a model. He's crazy handsome, mm-hmm. and he still is too. He looks so oh, good. He's so. just aged so well. It's <laughs> bastard. Shameful to all of us. Yeah, I think though. What's interesting is I don't even think his character's name is ever spoken. It's Dwayne, but yeah, I don't think I don't. That's think what's it's hard ever to keep up with, unless like when you grew up with this film, mm-hmm. unless you waited for the credits at the end, or you know, IMDb didn't exist. No, so they were just the Lost Boys. Like yeah. they were the Death by Stereo guy or the Bathtub guy. Yeah. Like that's how I knew them. Dwayne's the handsome brown-haired vampire. He's the only brown-haired vampire. They're so cool. And then we have Marco, who is played yeah. by uh, none other than Alex Winter yeah, from yeah. Bill and Ted fame. Yeah, Bill S. Preston Esquire. <laughs> <laughs> who has the most ridiculous slash glorious mullet ever created. It might be the greatest mullet in cinematic history. Look, you know, mullets are kind of overplayed now. It's not fun to make fun of mullets anymore. No, because mullets are actually kind of cool, but you just, you have to have a cool mullet. His, it, it's like... Just the bottom, just the like 
tip, the final row of hair on the back of his head, and then he let it grow into tiny golden ringlets that dangle down. It's a really glorious mullet. It's, yeah, it's something. He's also got the craziest outfit of all the Lost Boys. Yes, what is happening? He raided Michael Jackson's wardrobe. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty bonkers, (laughs) but I love that he's in this because he would go on to become, this wasn't his first film, although I think it was billed as his first film, but he'd already done a Death Wish movie, so I don't know why they did that but yeah actors sometimes get that like and introducing and i'm like but it's not introducing introducing again yeah and there's there's two other vampires we haven't talked about one is a child whom i actually still don't know i'm guessing is a boy no he is a boy totally a boy because he goes by the name laddie instead of lassie but uh i always was like is that a little boy is that a little girl doesn't really matter one way or the other or ever, but... You know what's interesting about him is, um, first off, like, everybody just had a lot of great things to say about him, but the the guy who did all the special effects and makeup had said he was so professional as a child because he was being put through these, like, contact lenses and all this makeup, yeah. and they were very, like, they, they hurt and they were uncomfortable. I've got more information about yeah, that. Yeah, no complaints. Like, the, they said he just was super cool on set and yeah. just, like, showed up, did his lines, and... You know, did what he was supposed to do. I think that's really interesting um, when you find like a child actor who is not distracting because oh, for long time listeners of Laser Graves, yeah, we have an issue with child actors. And I've never had an issue with him. Yeah. I mean, he's got some cheesy scenes, but that's what he was directed yeah. to do. Uh, he's not distracting in this he's film. Just fine. And he and Star, so Laddie and Star are half vampires with this troop of. Full, full-fledged vampires. They're half vampires because they have not feasted on the blood of the living yet. Yeah, they've just drank the blood, and that's how you've like you've started it. So you get some cool powers, but you mm-hmm. don't get to fully cross over. Basically, like you get all the vampire powers without burning in the sun is the way I interpreted it. Yeah. Like, why would you ever cross over? But you get real sleepy in the sun. Oh, but you won't be immortal. There you go. Oh, okay. okay. But vampires aren't immortal. Why do they say vampires are immortal? There are so many ways to kill vampires. Because if you're not killed that way, you're immortal. Okay. And <laughs> Well, that's like saying I'm immortal as long as age or illness or injury. Pre-existing conditions. Don't get me. <laughs> ah, I am immortal, almost. Okay, so we have our teen vamps. They vamped out. They've totally vamped out. They're on the boardwalk just doing their vampire thing. Do you like the... What do you think of the Lost Boys in general as a group? So cool. They were cool. And I um, I know it's like saying the word poser is uncool. You know, like you, that's not a term you use anymore. It's so 90s. It is so 90s. But I... Even though I knew they were actors and I knew that they weren't... They probably didn't listen to the music or live the lifestyle. They still kind of just felt like... Yeah, this is cool. And the only reason why I mention this is because the sequel, the immediate sequel, mm-hmm. that's my number one complaint, is I will tip my hat to Joel Schumacher for casting people who had no clue. They didn't clearly did not live the like gothic lifestyle or the heavy metal lifestyle. But for some reason, I didn't question it when I watched this. I was just like, yeah, sure. They're cool. Well, like, actually, I can say that some of the actors were sold on the role because of the soundtrack. So maybe there's a little more coolis- coolness than we thought. Maybe like three songs on the soundtrack. Hey, we'll get there. Okay. So 
the vampires are all just doing their thing. And then this town receives three new members. We have Lucy, who plays a mother, played by Diane Weiss, or Weiss. Weiss, yeah, I think. And her two sons, Sam and Michael, played by Corey Haim and Jason Patrick. I Diane, she's such a good actress. She is... She's like clutch in this film, by the way. Oh. She just... Is so understated, and if when you're when you're a kid watching this, you don't even give a second thought to the adults. But when you're an adult watching this, I'm like, she's a mom. She's actually my age. We discovered. Oh, isn't that bizarre? Whoa! When she was in this film, she's yes. your age currently. Yes. Yeah. That was weird um, to discover, <laughs> but she is so lovely. Her eyes. She has those kind of eyes that look like they're smiling all the time. Even when she's, like, sad, you're like, are you just waiting to smile? She's just such a good actress. I think she had already also won an Academy yeah, Award at this point. She was kind of a big deal. But, you know, this brings up an interesting point that I want to make about this film and okay. why I like it so much, in addition to just loving it, is when I first watched this film, I was the age of, like, the Frog Brothers and stuff. So yeah. I identified with the Corys and the, you know, yeah, all those... Yeah. And then as I watched it over the years, it's like I slowly became the Lost Boys age. And I was like, yeah, this is Mm -hmm. cool. And now I'm basically like Max and the mom's age. Yep. And I'm like, this is still a cool film. And I, what I do like, and Kiefer said this in his interview when he was talking about the the legacy of this film, mm-hmm. is that it has been passed down through generations yeah. and it holds up for different age groups. I think it's similar to like a really good band where... The band isn't locked in a time with a certain age group. You can just pass that band on. Yeah. The Lost Boys, that's one of the staying powers, is that it, you can appreciate it from multiple angles because they have different age groups in this movie. Yeah. And so depending on what age you are when you find this film, you identify with it. I mean, it's you've only got Grandpa left and then you got to tap out. And well, I joked the last time we saw this, the old fart scene, that is me right now. Like, I'm uh, kind of identifying with Grandpa more than anybody right now. Arguably, Max is older than Grandpa. <laughs> so you got some time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, so we have Lucy, Sam, and Michael who have moved from Phoenix to the small town to live with Lucy's father, who who is only known as Grandpa. He's played by Barnard Hughes. They go, it's like outside of town. He's got this weird bachelor pad that's actually pretty awesome. And I, I was super living Grandpa. it. Like he makes this movie. He's so great. And Joel Schumacher said that too. He said, I didn't have any, but I, I had no backup. So if he didn't accept it. Like, I was screwed. Yeah. And I agree. Like, Yeah, Barnard Hughes is great in this. I could not, I could not uh, imagine anybody else in it. He's he, perfect comic timing. And this is a comic, this is a, like a comedy horror. Yeah, I, I absolutely. never think of it as that, but it truly really? is. Oh, for sure. But it's so funny. And I think that that's what fails in the sequels. Again, we'll get to later, is they try and make it like a funny horror. This is perfect blend. It's like effortless. They don't oversell the comedy it's no. just right there the whole time understated and it, it 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 acknowledges that the viewer is smart enough to get the humor it doesn't have to be like to remind yeah. you that you're supposed to laugh there i found at a thrift store a couple years ago a trucker hat that says old fart and Aww. it made me so happy not only because i can wear it now uh because i i'm an old fart but i am also 
There are two movies in my life that have referenced Old Fart, and it is The Lost Boys and House 2, and they are two of my all-time favorite movies ever, so having an Old Fart hat, when I skate, like when I'd go to the skate park, I'd put on my Old Fart hat, and everybody would just laugh, because they got it. So they move in with Grandpa, and the first night, uh, we learn uh, that Lucy, she's left her husband, she's pretty much destitute she and her boys are just gonna start over grandpa's house is a soft place to land but they immediately go down to the boardwalk where sam and michael are just like hanging out being teens but lucy goes and look in search of work this is a really important scene because this is where all of these paths intersect which is kind of brilliant script writing when you think about it like what a clever way to introduce all the cast together. Yep, just put them this at a is place. Mom meets Max um, because she needs a job. He he owns a store. She gets a job, and I uh, and then the boys. Well, not the boys, but Corey meets the Frog Brothers because he goes into a comic shop and he loves comics. Yes. So the Frog Brothers, Edgar and Alan Frog, <laughs> yeah. played by Corey Feldman and uh, Jameson Newlander, are delightful i love them and i'm not a big fan of um movie t-shirts but you for like a birthday present found me a frog brothers shirt yes i was so happy yes (laughs) it's really cool uh yeah they are great i mean they're just such enduring characters yeah they were told to study by joel to study Sylvester Stallone and Chuck Norris to well, like get in character for for their parts. Yeah, Corey was already established. Like he had already done several movies. He had actually already worked with Richard Donner on Goonies. Uh-huh. That's how he got the the um, opportunity to audition. Oh, he had done like I, I something like over a hundred commercials Jeez. before this. He. He's done his time. Uh, he was so exploited as a child actor. Just a quick little side note. He was emancipated when he was 15 <laughs> and from his parents. He'd made well over a million dollars. And by the time of his emancipation, he had 40000 left. Yikes. Well, and this is a return because we just talked about him on The Burbs. Yeah. But yeah, he he talked about his role in this where he went and like read his lines and thought he did a really good job. And then Joel was like, that's okay. Yeah. However, you need to go watch a, like a ton of Stallone and Chuck Norris yeah. movies. And so one of the criticisms of his character is the way he talks and delivers his lines. I love how I he does it. I love that Edgar Frog is like, he's always like, what are you talking about? What are you yeah. doing? Because he's doing his part as an actor. That yeah. was his like marching order. And he has a red headband on. Yep. And like camo knocks it out of the park. Like that's exactly what he was supposed to do. And they are so much fun to watch in this movie. Yes. So we talked about this earlier, but maybe you can kind of elaborate on this, that they, they thought they were supposed to be super serious. Yes. One of them maybe was a little bit more in on the joke than the other. I don't actually don't think so. Really? You think they both got duped? I think they both thought their characters were supposed to be like, bad guys or they like, were like hardcore tough. yeah they were supposed to be vampire hunters using working at a a comic store to like as a cover for yeah. their <laughs> nocturnal vampire hunting which by the way had they ever killed no, a vampire this is the whole their first experience okay. with vampires right, yeah. but they're so into it 
that they and they're so committed to being these like hardcore vampire hunters that I think it was uh, Jameson who said he was halfway through filming before he realized that he was being funny. And, yeah. And like didn't didn't quite understand until that point that oh, okay, I get it. There I love it joke. though. I had those friends growing up that took things way too seriously. Yeah. That they were like a caricature of their themselves. When you say your friends, do you mean yourself? I did mean myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I one hundred percent believe you were a frog brother. Oh yeah, for sure. I yes. would have been the third one. Yes. Yeah. So true. But um Sam who was played by Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, this is their first interaction together. Which is a big deal for the 80s. And this is Laser Graves. I may or may not, um, mm. as we get closer to our 100th reveal, but we I may go into more detail about these two people what? down the road. What a tease. Weird. Well, you got to keep listening. Okay. So... The two Corys meet here first, and this is important because literally the rest of at least Corey Haim's life is going to be inextricably linked with Corey Feldman, and I think even Corey Feldman can never escape Corey Haim now because their their paths intersect. They do a bunch of films together. They even do later reality TV show when they're both adults and... You know, until Corey Haim dies from, it's like pneumonia, but it's related to drug drug abuse. It's a very tragic story. And anybody who knows, like the 80s, knows this, the yeah. story of the two Corys. Oh, we but, don't need to go down that road. No. and Yeah, because I want to save it. However, I will say that um, they did, they didn't cross paths, but they both auditioned for the role of mouth in Goonies. Ooh. Yeah. And, I think they Feldman went with got, the right mouth. I 100% agree they went <laughs> yes. with the right mouth. However, yeah, this is what started the 80s and early 90s. Um, you know, Corey Fever? Duo. Yeah, Corey Fever for sure. And yeah. I love it because they had a blast. They were in very different times of their life because Corey Haim loved making this movie. Like he was having a good time. Corey Feldman was in a transitional phase <sighs> and was going through a lot of trouble and drug abuse and well, just figuring shit out. I actually read that he was given cocaine by an adult on set. Well, he was using it to the point of he got fired on set. It was because he was given this cocaine that he used on set by somebody who was on set. Oh, man. Yeah, he... Yeah. Um, he got fired on set. Joel did not have any part of this one. No. He was pissed. And he, uh, the next day said, look, here it is. Like, I don't care who you are. If you don't get it together, you're out. And rehired him the next day with an agreement that he will not do this again. Yeah. And got through the rest of the film. Actually, Feldman gave him a lot of credit for it and said it was over a year before he used drugs again. But it was sometime around the burbs that he... Got that was really in deep. Yeah. But understand the most important fun fact is that they they met here. And they did. That. Well, because the older cast would go out and party at night and the Corys didn't get to go party. So what they did was they went to 
play arcade games and hang out at the hotel together and they just got to know each other. They just yeah. bonded. And so it is kind of cool because that's one of the legacies of the Lost Boys is it created the two Corys. Yes, absolutely. So the Frog Brothers meet Sam, played by Corey Haim, and they key in on him being kind of a weird city boy. And when we watched the documentary, this is when we learned that Sam's kind of a fancy dresser. They talked about him being like mall trash. I had never even noticed or given a thought to his outfit. I was just like, he's dressed 80s. But when we watched it the last time, I paid attention. He's wearing like a sweater that says shop till you drop. It's so bonkers. That's what Joel said, too, is that they wanted him to be like a fashion victim of the 80s mall. He was. Totally he was. But I never even thought about that either. I just accepted it as like he doesn't want to be at grandpa's house because he wants to just be anywhere else. I never picked up on how extreme his fashion is. Yes. It's crazy. Oh, it's it's something. It's pretty... The last person we should probably mention with cast is uh, Max. Yes, he's played by Edward Herman. Who was like the thespian of the bunch. And this is our other person beyond our cinematographer who was like, I only wanted to play something different for a change. Like, I wanted to be cool and be a vampire. And... I, in my entire life, thought this character was the epitome of uncool until the last time I saw it. And I'm like, actually, he kind of not only is his like glasses on trend right now, but, <laughs> <laughs> but like I get it. Like he he kind of runs this cool show where he brings in these guys and he he mentions this in the interview where he's not a vampire who just wants total chaos. He just wants to build something special. And yeah. I just bringing him in was really interesting because I think you could have gone with a lot of different people in this role. However, he plays the part really, really well. Yeah, because he's very unassuming. He just looks like a dude who runs a store and, you know, is interested in dating. He begins dating uh, Lucy, the mom of Sam and Michael. Michael, meanwhile, he... He starts running with the bad crowd because he's older. He's like a handsome 18-year-old wild child. He sees Star. They make googly eyes at each other. But then Star is hanging out with the other vampires. Yeah. And one thing leads to the next. They end up in this sunken hotel by by the ocean. It's like a cave hotel. It is the coolest. Well, I don't think it's supposed to be a hotel in the movie. It is. It's supposed to be a hotel that, like, fell down in an earthquake. Really? Yes. Okay. So that's why there's, like, chandeliers and beds and stuff like that. Oh, wow. I never knew that. In this cave. Yep. Did you ever catch why her name was Lucy? No. Why? Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interest. I mean, it makes good sense. I did want to say that when Michael ends up in the sunken hotel with the vampires. They they start feeding Chinese food mm-hmm. to him, and they're like, oh, how do you like eating worms? How do you maggots, like eating yeah. maggots? I Apparently on set, the maggots were just like laying there being maggots. They didn't have anything to feast on because it was just a bunch of maggots in a box. So the, the bug handler would squeeze a little lemon juice on them, and it would make them wriggle. Really? Yeah. Isn't I that weird? didn't know that that would cause that. I don't know why. Good to know. Now you know. Well, beyond the the cast, there's the music. That's like really super... 
iconic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so earlier, this was a thrift store find on a previous episode. I found the cassette of The yeah. Lost Boys, and I was so incredibly excited. Yeah. And then on another episode, I did an update where I was so disappointed. Okay. There's like three really good songs on the soundtrack, and the rest of it sucks. And I, watching it this time now, Mm -hmm. after owning the cassette, tried to pay attention, and they're very clever with how they, like, disguise the crappy songs on the soundtrack. (laughs) Like, they only use the best parts. But boy, we do have some pretty iconic music on this Yeah, actually, the soundtrack went to number 15 on the Billboard Top 200. Yeah. Absolutely. And there are some huge names. Yeah. Well, okay. I have a question for you because you know about the soundtrack uh-huh. and I don't. Um, why did Echo and the Bunnymen do a Doors song and not the Doors? Oh, I don't know why they did that, but I know I know why they were involved with the film. I don't know why they agreed to do a Doors song. They must just have not gotten the rights or something. To the doors? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know for sure why they wanted Echo and the Bunnymen to cover it. It might just be that Echo and the Bunnymen covered choice. it. That's a really good cover. But I know why all of the good bands that agreed to do it did. Oh, really? Yes. Like NXS. Uh-huh. So Joel agreed to direct a music video for each band. What? Yep. Do you know which videos he directed? Well, weirdly, for Echo and the Bunnymen, it was just The People Are Strange. Oh, well. Okay. It's him and Anton Corbin, but he got his name. Anton did it? Yeah. Oh, dude, that's awesome. Yeah, Anton did a bunch of their stuff. Okay, this is getting deep. Sorry, listeners, but we're mm-hmm. huge Anton Corbin fans. Uh, if not, you don't listen to Depeche Mode. You, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's your loss. So anyway, he just he just traded services, essentially. Wow, I didn't know that. Yep. What's interesting is it was like this weird, uh, like an Orboros, a, t- a snake eating its own tail, <laughs> because he gets the bands, but some of the actors agree because of the bands, and it's like... Hey, I wanted to s- slow down and say that was very... Um intelligent of you to use that as an analogy instead of the human centipede (laughs) i already used that one (laughs) that's true yeah i guess i can't reuse analogies also the human centipede doesn't recycle it just goes one end to the other yeah because you got to put something in okay okay um and then the cry little sister was actually written for this film i read i do know about this okay he never saw the movie he just read like a one-liner about the film and then did the lyrics also, it's interesting that this became the the like rally call of Lost Boys because uh, it shows up in the sequels. Like yeah. this is the the song associated with Lost Boys, which of course it is. I couldn't think of another song that that would be more Lost Boys than this one. Which is good. It's kind of like a um, dollar store version of Sisters of Mercy song. Yeah. I, it, you know? Very of. much so. I agree. <laughs> like, I, I always thought that. And I was like, okay, I guess this guy wasn't like post-punk. Yeah. You just did a really good job for this one song. Just just this one. And that was You're that. missing one musician. Who? That we have to talk about. Who? The musician. Oh! 
sexy Come sex on, man. Now. You know who we're talking about, Mr. Uh, I do push-ups in between takes. Yeah, so we both read that fun fact. <laughs> he, to, to make sure that his muscles were in, like, I guess, primo shape. Yeah, he, top order. He would, between shots, pump iron, do push-ups, whatever he had to do. And then he got up there, he was all oiled, he played a saxophone, and he pelvic thrusted. I imagine Tim would, like, um, kiss his muscles right before... And he's like, mm-hmm. it's go time. Yeah. He was the saxophonist for Tina Turner, wasn't he? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> cool obviously. Dear. I know that the uh, the ladies at uh, Witchfinger Podcast got to see him perform in person. Like, uh, in front of him. Got well, how to watch old him. is he now? He's got to be pretty old. 100. I, I don't know, man. Still pretty. That's he's pretty probably cool. still totally ripped. I would watch it. <laughs> I don't I don't think you can back out from being that. Like, once you've committed to that level of, like, physical fitness, you can't back down. So, Michael becomes transformed. He turns into a half vampire along with Star. He thinks, oops, maybe I don't want to be a vampire. And... Uh, He tries to kill his brother, uh, Sam. Sam is protected by his dog, who is named Nanook, as in Nanook of the North. Mm -hmm. If anybody's taking an anthropology class, hey. (laughs) What's up? (laughs) Uh, So he's got Nanook, his husky, who saves him, but he kind of snaps Michael out of his vamp trance. And so they realize they have to kill the head vampire, who they think is David, Kiefer Sutherland. So they do all this stuff. They find, they like decide they're going to go with the Frog Brothers, the two brothers, Sam and Michael and the Frog Brothers. They're going to get Star and Laddie. They're going to kill the head vampire. They're all going to be free and live happily ever after. The end. You know what's interesting? There's this scene here where they kill the first one, who is Alex Winter, is the first to kill. Yeah, they go into the sunken hotel where they're all, like, hanging out in in the daytime, And they stab him, and this was very, like, whoa, very jarring for me. I loved it as a kid. When they come out, I always was like, is the blood glittering? Uh Uh-huh. And I read that it was. They put, they mixed glitter into the blood to just make it seem more kind of magical and weird. Interesting. I always wondered that because I was like, am I just making that up or is there actual glitter in the blood right now? Very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. And I actually have this week's fun fact. Oh, You're coming in with a fun fact? I guess. Let's do it. Okay. So, after they try to kill the vampires, they fail. I mean, they kill Alex Winters, but the rest follow suit, like chasing them out. David leading the way. And there's this great shot as he reaches for them and his hand sets on fire. The shot. And he cries. Uh Uh-huh. One single magical tear. Uh Uh-huh. That shot has always stuck with me. Like, it's just so natural. This just one tear falling. And I had ascribed all this humanity to it. Mm Mm-hmm. The reality is much less impressive. What... Oh, did he do the um, put your hand in your pocket and... Pull a, and pull a pube? No. <laughs> pull a pube? No, he didn't pull a Joey Tribbiani. Okay, what did he, he do? Instead, it was, he didn't. He wasn't even trying to cry. They had really bad special effects. They didn't have a great budget. 
So they were using these horrible glass contacts. Oh, no. Seriously? That hurt his eyes so badly that he was just, like, trying to power through the pain for this scene. What? And a single tear fell out of his eye. It's like like, the most iconic scene. And they're like, it's just a... Dude. Just a little reaction to the contacts. Damn, good yep. fun fact. Yep. Uh, you know, I've always wondered, too, if this was very influential on Interview with the Vampire and Brad Pitt. Because I feel like... Oh, yeah. The whole look and feel and scene... Those eyes. It's all so Interview with the Vampire. Yeah, I thought that, too. Especially the, the last time we watched it. Now yeah. I want to watch Interview with the Vampire again. Yeah, sure. Maybe. I don't Why know. We said we were going to watch Dracula first. Oh, yeah. Oh, are Let's we do doing, that. like, a vampire thing? I don't know. Okay. Maybe. Okay. So, anyway, we move to it's that night. It's time for the showdown at Grandpa's house. They send Grandpa away. Mom goes on a date with her new boyfriend, Max, who we don't know anything bad about at this point. No, but this is where we get all the cool deaths of yeah. the movie. And like I said earlier, the Frog Brothers tell you how all of them die. It's yep. really awesome so good. Like, foreshadowing. But we get some really... So Alex Winter has already been killed. He was staked in the cave. Mm-hmm. The next to go is Blondie, who is awesome because they put this garlic on him. Paul. Yeah. Yes. And, and he's like, garlic don't work. And, but then they're like, what about holy water? And they throw him in the tub filled with holy water. What a cool scene. I find it very heartening that if vampires are real... In this reality, you can still eat garlic. That would be the number one reason I would not want to be a vampire. I mean, you'd have to like decline garlic. Yeah, like I could go ahead and mop the streets of all of its filth and scum with blood sucking, but if I couldn't have garlic, I would see no point. (laughs) I would see no point to eternity. That's just the facts. You know what? You're being very honest. I know you very well. Uh, So the the. Bathtub kill is really cool. There's blood everywhere. Uh, my favorite kill will always be the next one. Yes. When the model, Dwayne, gets killed by Corey Haim. This is a really cool kill, and I actually have an interesting fact about this one. Okay. Is this your fun fact? Well, it's not a fun fact, because you already Just took the awesome fun fact. Casual fact. This is, yeah, like, uh, you know, like a footnote fact. Okay. So the whole entire filming took three weeks that's it they did it pretty quick at least that's what i read believe it or not i i'll believe it okay yeah it's true it's a pretty straightforward film two of the three weeks took this one scene what death by stereo why i think because it's so involved with all the effects and everything and they must have had some problems which isn't a surprise sure i bet they tried it and they were like oh man this isn't working let's try it again death by stereo stood out so extreme in my brain like this was my all-time favorite kill and it's still to date even though i've seen a quabillion horror movies still one of my all-time favorite kills ever Mm. because it's got everything like this metalhead's like coming at him Corey grabs a you know a bow and arrow shoots it and he falls down and you're like awesome he got him Mm -hmm. and then he stands up you miss sucker and when he says that which he doesn't get a lot of lines, but come on, dude. As yeah. a model, you nailed it. Good job. Yeah. You already like won 80% of your job. Yep. Because most models suck at line delivery, and he did it. And yep. he says that, and then gets this arrow through, shoots into the stereo, electrocutes, blows up. I mean, it's so elaborate and yeah. awesome. 
And then Corey Haim says this. Death by stereo. I mean, come on. This is like everything I lived for as a kid in a movie. Yeah. So I just love, I love this kill so much. But really, you're just left with uh, Kiefer, you know, David. He be, he's impaled. He's impaled on antler horns. Yeah. I Great kill. I mean, it's an awesome kill. And the lighting, the red lighting, it's just beautiful. Yeah, so Grandpa, who had been off meeting with a widow for a late night hookup, he's, <laughs> he's very well aware of the vampire situation. We learn at this point, he like drives through his own house and rescues everybody. Yeah. And then grabs a root beer. <laughs> he does. But yeah, so they defeat the vampires. They find out that Max is actually the head yes. vampire. He's the one who's been dating Lucy. He wants to create a like idyllic vampire family. Yeah. But they overcome. End of movie. I mean, it's very straightforward. Very mm-hmm. classic script. It does very well. Everybody does a great job. There isn't really a single scene in the movie where I cringe or go, oh, that doesn't hold up or that looks bad. Like, mm-hmm. It's really, really good. And it was made on a decent budget. I mean, it had $8.5 million budget. However, they're banking on a relatively up-and-coming director. Yeah. And it it went the distance, for sure. Yes. I mean, it made, geez, like 30 plus, 32 million or something like that. Calm down, It, it did really, really well. And for good reason. I sure. mean, It came out in the summer, didn't it? It had to. Yeah, it came, I think it came out in July. Yeah. And it it just... Every, they got all the right people in all the right parts. Yeah. And it just worked. It was like a cool young cast, vampires. It's, you know, it is what it is. And the legacy. The legacy is basically it set a new standard of like, you want to make a vampire film? You got to make it kind of cool now. Like yeah. it's... Long Gone are the Hammer films that are just like kind of crusty old cliches. Like this now is like, if you're going to make a vampire film, it needs to be cool. Actually, you know what? I I forgot to tell you. I know that there was an alternate ending. Planned. No way. Yeah. I did not know this. Because yeah. I, I, mean, I just never looked into any of all this. Well, you probably know part of it because... It was supposed to lead into a sequel, which I'll let you touch on, because Kiefer wasn't supposed to be fully dead. That's the antlers, right? That was intentional. Yes, but the original ending was supposed to come post-credits back in the, like, sunken hotel where cave thing where the vampires had been living. It was supposed to end on a shot of a mural with Max from the early 20th century looking just like he looks. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, the sequel is supposed to be The Lost Girls. Yes. It just never happened. Yeah, and it was supposed to be same place. David was supposed to be in there. He was supposed to have survived this uh-huh. uh, antler thing. Yeah, but it, we didn't get that. Uh, what we did get was... <laughs> so sad. Years and years and years later, 2008, we got The Lost Boys, The Tribe, okay. part two, which I own and just watched again yeah we watched it when it first came out yep and i rewatched it again because i did the distance for this episode thanks guys you didn't make me watch it i appreciate i didn't but we really do put in the effort especially (laughs) for this episode i watched the tribe again um more enjoyable than i remember the first time because i was really against it when i when it first came out i was like there i mean i was really against the idea of a sequel to the lost boys 
it does have Corey Feldman. He plays, you know, Edgar still like, but this time instead of running a comic book shop, he like uh, makes surfboards, but he still does his side job. The script is like identical. I mean, it really does follow the same exact suits Mm -hmm. just with different younger sexy cast. Um, I will also say the kills are really good. It's very gory. I love it for that because I'm a fan of gore in horror films. So that I, it has going for it. Mm-hmm. It's fine overall. If you wouldn't have called it Lost Boys, like this would have been a really cool mm. vampire film. It was just trying to step just on a trying legacy. trying too hard. The biggest misstep, I will say, not only it just being a product of the time, so the cinematography and stuff is going to look like that yeah. era of 2008. The biggest misstep is that, and the reason why I planted the seed early in this episode is, the Lost Boys in the original, even if they weren't metalheads or whatever, they were still somewhat believable as those mm-hmm. characters. These guys are all like frat boys, like like bros in this film. Mm. Like buff, well-manicured surfer guys. And those aren't the vampires I want to see. Although like, those are more believable. California are, va- vampires. Yeah, for sure. They are. And that's what I gave it the benefit of the doubt. Is I was like, if you just called this anything different... This would have been a really great vampire movie. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad vampire movie. It's just that for the Lost Boys, I want that kind of metal edge, that mm-hmm. like outsider vampire. And these guys are all bros. So I don't know. It's fine. I, I just think don't go into it with high expectations. Yeah. Then in 2010, we got The Thirst, which I honestly don't know if I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I tried really hard to find a copy the only one I could find was to rent it, uh, and I didn't want to pay. <laughs> was Feldman in that one, too? Yeah, I think okay. he's in that one, too. But whatever, you get two sequels. Really, that's not the story. The story is the legacy of, and the cast members kind of touched on this, is that the Lost Boys set the bar for mm-hmm. vampire films post-Lost Boys. Like, yeah. you really... Anything after The Lost Boys is going to be held up to The The Lost Lost Boys. Boys. Whether you like this film or not, that's the reality. And so, what a legacy to have. Yeah, it's so good. I don't know. So that's it. And that's that's The Lost Boys. I hope you enjoyed listening to our breakdown of it and just kind of enjoying how it came to be, who was involved, and, and how we got this monumental vampire film that is. I mean, it really does hold up. And we can say that because we just watched it again the other day. And I loved it more than I've ever loved it. So mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it in a long time, I highly recommend you watch it. Just make it part of your annual routine. Yeah, for sure. If you don't like this film for whatever preconceived notion, maybe give it another shot because it's a good film. I, they're really... Mm-hmm. I don't know why you wouldn't like it. It's got such smart um, cinematography and like... They do all these just little clever things that if you look at it with fresh eyes, maybe it'll take away something different. Yeah, I would agree. So there you go. I mean, it's a no-brainer that it's Laser Graves approved. Uh, We really had fun doing this one this week. I hope you enjoyed it, too. That's all we got for you. So if you liked it, please tell your friends. Maybe this is the episode where you're like... um, I didn't like Alien Seed or Space Mutiny, but boy, do I like Lost Boys, and I'm going to tell my friends to listen to this one. Or maybe now you go, 
I do like Alien Seed. Yeah, because it's an awesome movie. Okay. Duh. Duh. But please tell your friends, uh, share, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast, mm-hmm. wherever, everywhere you get it. Uh, we're also on Instagram at Laser Graves. But it does mean a lot that you do share, that you post, repost yeah. what we're doing on Instagram and you just tell a friend to check so us out. So appreciate that. Thank you so much. If you want to follow our personal sites on Instagram, I'm at death at 33 RPM. I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer. And that's what we got for you. As far as next week, we are amping up for 100. We've got, we've been doing some prep work. We are prepping hard. I don't know what we'll do. Maybe we'll do Golden Child next week instead. I don't know. We'll see. Eh. <laughs> to be determined. Bye. Bye.